Welcome to Tilting at Windmills with your host, Mike Donahue. Hey everyone, this is Mike. I think we have a good one today. There's probably nothing that quite gets people talking right now as much as transgender rights. Everything from the use of pronouns that you see in email signatures now to trans athletes competing both at the you know high school, Olympic, and professional level, and just uh, the overall how do we handle it when you have a transgender child coming out. So I have an excellent guest today, Callie from Queersplaining.com, and uh, they are going to tell me why I am wrong about transgender rights. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Tilting at Windmills with Mike Donahue. I am fortunate to be joined here today with Callie, who is the host and producer of the podcast Queersplaining. Callie, hi. Hello. Thanks for having me. No, of course. Of course. Thanks. And obviously, for everyone listening, the whole trans rights, trans people in in society, it seems to be a big topic currently. And almost, I think there's some equivalencies to be drawn to where, you know, gay rights were in the 1990s, say. And, and so I think any conversations that we can have that try and help us understand or get a better perspective on the situation as a whole is a, is a positive thing. So I, I do appreciate you taking the time today, Callie, to, to help out. So we'll start just with the first thing that comes to mind, because everybody's putting it on their emails, everybody's adding it to their Twitter accounts. My pronouns are he, him. Your pronouns are they, them, correct? That is correct, yeah. Okay. Can you talk about maybe why that's important for trans people? And do you have a term for for normal See, 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 I'm screwing up. <laughs> you can't say normal. Uh, Cis, cisgender is the word. Cis, right, sorry, yes. cisgender, hetero cisgender people. We're, we're going on a journey here today, my friend. It's going to be great. Okay. <laughs> uh, you know what? I, let's, then let's pull the horse back to the beginning. <laughs> tell, can you tell me a bit about yourself and, and uh, what you're... Uh, sort of life story is? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, I am, uh, I just turned 36. I was born in 1984. So, you know, grew up in the 90s into adulthood in the early 2000s to just kind of like give a general idea of the the generational background that I'm coming from. In terms of trans stuff, I had my first gender feels realization when I was like 10 and, you know, there, there's no such thing as a universal trans experience, but it's pretty common for folks to start to kind of figure that sort of stuff out when puberty hits, sometimes before, sometimes way after. And I guess that should maybe be my first disclaimer is that, like, I am one trans person and I can, I can kind of speak in generalities about, like, things that trans folks encounter. But I do think it's really important to note that, like, I'm speaking from my own perspective as, as a white 36-year-old middle-aged non-binary person. So obviously, like, I, I can't and wouldn't try to speak for the entire community. So that's that's kind of my, my background. And 
when puberty started, obviously puberty is weird, right? Puberty is a weird process for uh, everyone who experiences it. I feel like that's probably a safe assertion to make. It, 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 it uh, was for me. Yeah. <laughs> but I just, you know, I started to realize that it didn't seem to be weird for me in the ways that it was weird for other people. And specifically, you know, when you start to become aware of the differences uh, between the the kinds of puberty that people generally undergo, I started to get a real sense that I was maybe going through the wrong one. And I had this kind of like lightning bolt realization one day sitting at the lunch table in fifth grade. And I was like, I was kind of a lonely nerd when I was in, uh, when I was in elementary school and like my one other nerd friend that I ate lunch with wasn't there. And so I was just kind of hanging out at the lunch table by myself with my own thoughts, like stewing and all of this. And I literally, and this is a thing that I do. I think it's like a brain tick that I have is like when a thought hits me that hard, I just feel the need to say it out loud. And I actually like kind of whispered to myself, like, I was supposed to be a girl. And, uh, you know, and then I realized, you know, because by 10 years old, you've already internalized so much of what society teaches you about what gender is and what gender is supposed to be. And I knew that, like, as a person, quote unquote, who was a boy, I wasn't supposed to be in any way associated with, quote unquote, girl things, right? I made the mistake of telling someone my favorite color was purple once. And, like, that was a whole thing. So I just knew that like that was a thing in my cultural reference point at the time. I knew that meant that there was something seriously wrong with me and that I could never tell anyone. And like that just had to stay a secret with me forever. And it kind of stayed that way. I came out when I was 28. So it's it's been a while. And, you know, the the short version is throughout the rest of my youth and and teens and 20s it was a, you know it was a thing that would come to the surface and it would be really hard and really hurtful and then i could kind of push it back down again and it was kind of those ebbs and flows for a long time until i turned 28 and you know i don't know exactly what was different but that time the feelings didn't go away and i started contemplating self harm and just got to a very, very dark place in my life. And it was always kind of in the back of my head. Like I, I knew what I was feeling that made me feel this way. But of course, for the longest time, I didn't have a word for it. And then, you know, at that point, by the time I'm 28, obviously I've, I've heard transgender people referenced in one way or another, usually negatively, just, you know, in the media and, you know, stereotypes that we see in like movies and TV shows and that kind of stuff. And kind of the long story short version is I, I confided in a friend and she was very supportive and helped me explore everything. I got connected with the community. I came out and then um, just about uh, maybe a year and a half or so ago, I kind of figured out that non-binary is actually the label that describes me best as opposed to being like a transgender woman. And that's a whole other story. But basically what it came down to for me is when I asked myself like, okay, if I'm a woman, why am I a woman? And the only answers that I could come up with had to do with some kind of gender stereotype, like a preference that I had for the way that my body is arranged or uh, you know, the clothes that I like, whether or not I like makeup, all of that sort of stuff. I'm like, this is all gender stereotypes and we're supposed to be leaving that stuff behind, right? And I just kind of got frustrated and I was like, you know what? I don't think gender actually makes sense to me at all anymore. And maybe that makes me non-binary. And so I'd like, I just kind of lived with that for a minute and I just kind of like figured out which, what language made me feel the most comfortable. And, uh, turns out that's it. So I started, but that's not, that's not necessarily set in stone, right? Like, like it's, um, like many things in people's lives, right? 20 years from now, you 
may identify differently. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a thing that even people who are ostensibly accepting of trans folks, I think it's a pressure they sometimes unknowingly put on trans folks is that like once you make a change of some kind, like you change your name, you change your pronouns, any of that kind of stuff that like, so that's just got to be the thing for the rest of your life. And I tend to think that gender and sexuality can, can be fluid. It's not for everyone, but it certainly can be fluid. Those kind of things change throughout your life. And, and a lot of times, honestly, it's really hard to set apart, like, what of this is me and what of this is a reaction to what I've been taught by society, right? And the difference between those two things, I don't know that they always necessarily matter because if it's programmed into you such that it's a part of your identity, I don't know that it matters if it's that or who you inherently are. That's like gender 301 stuff. <laughs> but but yeah, I think, that's, I think that's a battle that a lot of trans folks fight. And I think it's a fight that I was kind of fighting with myself because, you know, I didn't, you know, as much as I knew that transgender people existed, non-binary was a concept that I wasn't really familiar with and didn't really know that it was an option. And so I just kind of like, well, this box doesn't fit. So I'm just going to like jump across into the other box. And that felt a lot better and felt like home for a while. And then it kind of started to feel a little stuffy. Uh, and so I was like, you know what? I think maybe I don't need a box at all. <laughs> we, we we are obsessed with boxes, aren't yes. we? Yes, yes, we are. Gosh. And then, yeah, and I started, I started podcasting about six years ago. The TLDR version of that basically is that I'm, I'm queer, I'm trans, I'm also an atheist, and I never really felt fully at home in any of those identities within the communities that I was a part of. So uh, there were not a lot of prominently queer trans folks in organized atheism, and there is a, a high level of re religiosity in the queer and trans community, uh, lower than in the general population for sure. It's about 50% the last time I saw. But like in the particular community spaces that I was in, I was really surprised to find that I was kind of unwelcome as a person who uh, didn't have religious beliefs. And so I was like wow, that seems like there's a conversation to be had there. And so I decided to start a podcast because I went to school for audio engineering and I had that background, like I had the gear. And so I started a podcast and it was, you know, a talk interview show for a while. And then I just got more interested in the power of, uh, of just telling stories. And so that's what I do now. That's what Queer Splaining is. It's a, a queer and trans storytelling show. At queersplaining.com, he said yes. in his best commercial voice. They. <laughs> oh, Me. I was oh. talking about my voice. Oh, okay, okay. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> Fair. No, you're good, you're good, you're good. <laughs> yeah, sorry. No, that was a good plug, though. That was a really good like transition into the plug. That was nice of I, <laughs> I Best effort. That's all you can get from me. So have you given any thought, because now we're, we're kind of tangenting off, but have you given any thought to why those boxes and those labels are, are so important to us? It feels like culturally. It feels on the surface like, that label or that identifier or, God forbid, identity politics, who knows what that is exactly. But <laughs> It's a thing it, that everyone practices, whether they think they do or not. <laughs> okay, but so do you, is there a reason, is it just our humanistic tribal need? What, have you, have you ever given any thought to where that sort of springs from? Oh, all the time. Um, and honestly, I think tribalistic is a bad word for it because um, you know, we, we tend to think of tribalism as a bad thing, and the word tribe is generally associated with indigenous people, right? But what we find as we go back through history is that, you know, speaking solely about gender, uh, there are indigenous peoples who are far more progressive than our society ever has been <laughs> on gender. So it's, it's I, I don't like using that word to describe it. I mean, 
the in-group, out-group thing definitely has uh, a lot to do with it. But why we draw those particular boundaries around in-groups and out-groups, I am not a sociologist by any stretch of the imagination, but my read of it, honestly, is the the colonial version of evangelical Christianity that has sort of like taken root and dominated so much of the culture, uh, the dominant culture that we grow up in, has that as its tenets. And so I think a big part of it comes from that. And then people who don't even necessarily subscribe to that anymore still have that kind of as their cultural ideal because, you know, we see these ostensibly binary physical differences, right? People have penises and and then people have vaginas and breasts. So there are two categories, even though, you know, there's tons of science saying that it's way more complicated than that. But I think like at its root, it comes back to that particular like settler version of evangelical Christianity that kind of dominates the society that most of the English-speaking world lives in. So, so there were a couple of moments in that last couple of moments within the last couple of minutes that I'd, I'd like to just touch on. The, the first is that you thought for a moment that I was referring to you as, as he and your pronouns are they, them. It feels like it's, it's the, the pronoun thing seems to rattle people. It's like the very first thing, if, if you see someone's, you know, I've, I've had people say, you know, I saw on their email, they put he slash she on the, or she, her, she on the, on her email signature, and they were kind of blown up by it, right? It was, it was weird to them. And is it, is it, is it just because it's new and, and weird or what do you, what do you think is behind the resistance to that? I think a lot of cis people are threatened by trans people. (laughs) I I think that's what it largely comes down to. I I think what's interesting to me is that there is, there's sort of a pervasive cultural idea that pronouns are important to trans people and not anyone else. And I think that's silly, right? Like if you misgender a cis person, generally speaking, you're going to cause them at least a little bit of embarrassment right? If not anger or indignation, sometimes for bad reasons, right? Like, uh, because, you know, if you, if you call a cis woman, he, that's, you know, negative because women aren't supposed to be manly in any way. And if you imply that a woman is being manly, you are insulting her because of that and vice versa, right? Men are supposed to be masculine and they're not supposed to be feminine at all. And so if you call a man, she, that can be insulting, right? And uh, so I, I think it's it's interesting that there's this idea that pronouns only matter to trans people and that's just patently not the case, right? Like if English is your first language, I, I know the other languages treat gender differently than English does. So this is like primarily speaking from an English as a first language standpoint, but like pronouns are a, a designator for, for better or worse in the English speaking world for, for a large part pronouns are a designator of part of who a person is. And uh, I would be hard-pressed to find any cis person who doesn't care about pronouns and who wouldn't care if you were intentionally misgendering them somehow. So I think I would just kind of like push, you didn't assert that, but I would push back on that cultural idea because I think it is pervasive. But why it's particularly important to trans folks is that uh, oftentimes trans people have had to fight to have those proper identifiers used for them, right? It's some of us are very, very fortunate and that we can just say like, hey, my pronouns are she, her now. And everybody's like, cool. And it's like, not a big deal. 
but most people don't live in that world, right? Most people, there is a period of self-realization, a period of struggle, a period of coming out that's uncomfortable at best, if not outright traumatizing. And, uh, you know, respecting that in a person is a very real acknowledgement of who, of who that person is at the core, right? And that's why it's, it, it's important for trans people, I think, in a, in a different way than it is uh, for cis folks in a lot of ways. Um, so I guess that's kind of like the, the basic primer of, of why it matters so much. You said uh, early on in that explanation about, I don't want to use the wrong word, but I think you, you mentioned that, that you think that part of it is due to cis people. And for those of you out there who don't know what cis people are, it's someone who, is it someone who, who identifies as their biological sex? I don't like the, the biological sex framing. The, the best way to describe it is just that you, you're cool with what you were assigned at birth, right? So like the, the doctor wrote an M on your birth certificate and like you're cool identifying yourself as a man, that kind of thing. Uh, so it's, it's the opposite of, of transgender, right? So trans is the prefix meaning across. Cis is a prefix meaning the same as. So it's, you know, earlier, I forget if we were recording when you did it, but like you almost said like normal people, <laughs> And, <laughs> I did, I and, did. and the word the word cisgender exists to 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 stop that designation between normal people and transgender people. There are right. cisgender people and transgender people. Um, and then yeah. for those of you out there listening that don't understand what's wrong with calling people normal, cis people normal is that that infers that anybody who is not is the opposite of normal. Right. And and there's you know, there's the, the cultural idea that normal equals good, right? Like, if, if culturally the word normal only meant, you know, the thing that happens 50% plus one of the time, whatever, who cares? But, like, generally that's not what our culture means when we say something is normal versus not normal. So so, so I think the word, I, 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 I'm, I'm so, this is like inception in my, in, in our conversation here. We're, we're hitting multiple levels here. You mentioned at the beginning, I think, about that you think part of it is by people being intimidated by trans people. Was that threatened? Was that the, is the word I think. threatened? Yeah, threatened. Is it is it possible? Because I I I hear that you know when I'm I grew up in the eighties and the nineties, and that was the case with with the the gay rights movement then, and there was this thing that if if you weren't fully behind the gay rights movement, it was because you were threatened by gay people and in turn, that made you homophobic. And I think, you know, I, I, I think the America's shift towards being accepting of gay people and gay rights is one of the most dramatic cultural shifts within, you know, a 25-year span that we've undergone, and obviously there's a ton of ways to go, but I think things are radically different now than they were in in that very specialized niche of rights and public attitudes than than it was 25 years ago. And I'm just, I guess, I'm just wondering: it, is it? It's easy to say you're afraid of something, or it's easy to say you're threatened by something, but. How how much of that is has to do with the whole, you know, it's a different sexuality or it's a, a, a different it's it's something that people are uncomfortable with just because it's new to them. 
and they haven't been exposed to it. Does that does that make sense? Like I'm. Uh, yeah. Well, and, and I, I think there is a difference when, when I say that cis people are threatened by trans people. That doesn't mean like being threatened by someone or something doesn't always necessarily mean that you actively hate that thing, right? Being afraid of something and hating something are not necessarily the same thing. Like they often go hand in hand, but they're not necessarily the same thing. And 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 there you know there are varying degrees to that. But I think at, at the core, there are a lot of people who have a lot invested in how much they fit a specific gender stereotype, right? Like men wear camo and grow beards and have guns and like a certain oh, kind of Christ. music and work on cars and like all of that stuff, right? And there are people whose identities are built around those stereotypes to one degree or another. And a lot of those things have to do with how you interrelate to other people, especially romantically or sexually. And the fact that trans people exists kind of just blows that apart, right? Like it's a, a threat to like, I have built the foundation of my life on this set of ideals that I'm supposed to aspire to as a man or a woman. And the idea that there is a group of people who just demonstrate that that's, that's actually something that it's a construct. It's a thing that you choose to do. It's not a thing that is like objective truth handed down from on high, that in some ways is a, is a sort of a core threat to someone's identity. And I, I think that is some to do with it. I also think that a lot of people see the advancement of queer rights and trans rights as, a, uh, as, as an, um, what's the word I'm looking Infringement. For? Infringement, thank you. An infringement on their own in one way or another. When like really the only right that gets taken away is the right to treat us like shit. Uh, sorry, can we cuss? Is this like PG-13? You can. Okay. You can. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, I don't, I, I want to draw a distinction between being threatened by and actively hating because I think those are very different things. I have, I have met plenty of cis people who I think were afraid of me in one way or another, but I don't think they actually hated me. And I have met, I've actually met plenty of people I think who like really truly actively hated me but weren't actually afraid of me they just hated me <laughs> because of being trans so i think it's really important to to draw that distinction and i also think it's important to understand that those things are not always intentional or even conscious right like unconscious bias is a thing like we all to one degree or another grow up in a culture that teaches us certain things about gender and the fact that we internalize those things is not necessarily it's not necessarily a commentary on us being bad people, right? It just means that we've internalized some bad ideas. I think what I think what matters is the degree to which you're comfortable challenging those things and being willing to leave those things behind as you learn. And is is that is that one of the core differences between the trans rights movement and the gay rights movement? Because to me, the gay rights movement or or the quote unquote being gay is was supremely easy to you know, identify and, and draw the lines around, you know, a gay person is someone who has sex with someone of the same sex, right? And it was just, it was super easy to just, okay, that's that's what they are, and it's simple, and I can understand it, right? It's new to me, maybe, but, you know, or maybe my Bible tells me that it, I shouldn't like that person or whatever, but it it's not nuanced in many ways. 
And is is part of the struggle now with trans rights the fact that it is so nuanced and it is much more complex than than just having sex with someone of your own gender? Yeah, I think so. And I would also just point out that it's also about romance. It's not just about sex, right? It's about who you love and maybe who you have sex with. Because I, I think that is an important distinction, right? Because a lot of people, they hear gay and they automatically think like sex, right? But like that's not always necessarily the case. But I, I do think that's part of it. I think the way that I would probably illustrate the difference is that it was a little simpler to make the case for queer rights because it's about one person loving another ostensibly or like having sex with another. And, um, you know, there are, there are asexual people, but most folks understand what it means to be romantically and or sexually attracted to another person. Right. And so the, the leap for them to get across is that I just have to like understand that there are some people who have that towards the same gender, not a different gender. And I think that is an easier bridge to cross because it's really easy to get people's feelings up about romance and about love. Because that's, you know, if you look at, you know, when we talk about queer rights, like so often what we're actually talking about is marriage, right? Um, Because there are lots of ways in which queer rights is not a whole lot better off because there are still some places where it's legal for you to lose housing over being gay, legal to be denied healthcare because you're gay, that kind of stuff. And so I think it's, it's important to talk about, you know, when we talk about queer rights and trans rights, we're talking about a constellation of things. And I think it was, I don't want to say easy. I, I would say easier to get people behind the idea of like, Hey, you know what? You love your wife a whole lot. I love my husband in the same way you love your wife. And I think that's a lot less of a steep hill to climb than housing, for example, or healthcare or any of that kind of stuff. And what is at the core of trans rights is those kind of less sexy things, housing, healthcare, poverty, that kind of stuff that uh, it's, you can't make it sexy for the rich donors to get behind, or it's a lot harder to make it sexy in the same way. Mm. The the other thing uh, that, that came up during that explanation or, or during that initial sort of conversation we had is that I used the word tribal. And I, you know, and you did it in a very polite, non-threatening way. But, you know, for, for me, you know, it feels a little bit like a, especially someone I think who's trying to, quote unquote, do the right things and say the right things. For me, it was a little just a general reminder of, hey, you know, words have power. But I think I think there's a whole large segment of our population that, and even on the left, that really feel like we're being beaten up over this stuff. That we now have to put a lot of thought and effort into... You know, to to me, tribal was an innocuous word, but now that you mention it, yeah, I can understand how that implies some sort of primitive culture. But I think I think we're, you know, with the with the cancel culture, which is a whole other situation. It just I think I think coming from a, a cis hetero cis person's perspective, 
it can feel constraining. Like we're we're afraid that we're just afraid, right, of of offending someone or causing harm or causing damage. And I think there's a little bit we've gone undergone as a nation so much radical change in these areas in such a short amount of time. I, I think there's a little bit of I don't know if exhaustion's the right word, but it 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 feels like and you know how the media love to make stories out of something, you know, one one college student and some one incredibly remote state does something really sort of silly and the you know the media portrays it as this is the attitudes of the entire queer nation. But I I you know, I don't know how you feel about do you do you also sense that? I think that's part of the pushback that that some people might be putting out there is that it's like I've always used this word. I know I didn't know it was a bad word. It doesn't feel like a bad word. I don't want to get beat up for stuff. I understand slurs. I'm not going to, you know, use the N-bomb or or whatever. But it's hard when so much of our quote-unquote traditional vocabulary I don't know if appropriated is the right word, but is is sort of tagged with that. No, no, you can't say that brush. Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, the first thing that I would say is that if you really want to do and be better, that discomfort is the price of admission. Like there's no other, there's no other option. Just like, you know, as a white person, there are a lot of things I have had to unpack about my thoughts and my language surrounding race. Not all of it's been fun. Some of it's been uncomfortable and some of it's hurt my feelings a whole bunch, but like, that's just not important when it comes to dismantling white supremacy in the country, for example. And that's not to say that those feelings aren't valid and shouldn't be dealt with in any way, but that's not... Whatever whatever discomfort I go through in unpacking my stuff around race is not the problem of non-white people, right? And so, you know, when I turn that around and we're talking, uh, you know, in terms of like, you know, I'm part of the marginalized group and that like I'm a trans person and I'm talking to cis folks about uh, like language and thoughts surrounding gender, I would say that if you want to practice allyship learning to live in that discomfort is kind of step one. Like there's just no way around it. And I also think that it's important to recognize that the ability to opt out of that discourse and move away from that discomfort is a privilege that I do not have and that trans people as a whole do not have. I, you know, as a non-binary person, I have to if I'm talking about gender, I have to learn to tap dance in almost every conversation I have ever because I have to thread the needle between being honest and upfront and forthright and do my best to try to not hurt someone's feelings, right? Because I, I, I don't want to hurt people's feelings. I don't want to be mean. I want to be nice. I'm a nice person. I like puppies and I like coffee and I like Star Trek, <laughs> you know? Um, not this season though. Oh, stop it. So good. All of it's good. Love it all. That's a different conversation. That's actually, I'm going to go ahead and cancel you for that statement right there. We can leave all the gender <laughs> stuff behind. Uh, <laughs> Got it. Um, but like, obviously in every group of people, you're going to find the people that like just want to be angry and yell and scream about everything and are more interested in that than things getting better, right? Like we, we simply have to acknowledge that those people exist and that that is not generally helpful. 
But I do think it is important that if you're going to practice allyship, you have to willingly lean into that discomfort because there's no way around it. I would say it gets better over time. You know, the more you learn and the more you practice and the more you listen to folks, it does get easier. But I would just say that like, I, one of the most important things that I think I can say in, in discourse around trans stuff is that trans folks are very used to being asked for grace and patience, right? I'm going to screw up your pronouns. I'm going to use your dead name. I'm going to use like wrong language of some kind. And so like, please just be patient with me. I'm trying and I'm learning, right? And that's almost everyone, actually, I should, every conversation I've had with this around this topic in this context has kind of started with that bit of conversation, right? And I am 100% here for that. I think that's great because if if someone's heart is genuinely in the right place, they're really trying to learn, genuinely trying to do the right thing, I want to facilitate that process. But as a person who lives this in my everyday life, like when I walk out the door, I don't leave my transness behind, right? If a stranger gets my pronouns wrong, I have to decide, like, am I going to correct this person and start a potentially awkward conversation that may end up with my feelings hurt or may end up being dangerous if I happen to talk to a person who, like, really hates trans people, right? Like, that is my every day. And I can't walk away from it no matter how much I want to. I don't have that choice. People who want to practice allyship often do have that privilege, right? They could walk away from the discussion if they decide that they're too comfortable and that they don't like it and that it doesn't feel good. You can just walk away. I don't have that choice. And so what I would say is that I think it's incumbent on people who want to have these conversations to give that grace in return, right? Like, I understand that like, if you get my pronouns wrong, that it's not because you're mean and because you hate me, but it's still going to hurt my feelings, and I deserve space to have those feelings, even if you didn't do it on purpose. And that doesn't mean that I'm coming at you like you're a terrible person or that I hate you, but like you did something that hurt my feelings and it's okay for me to be hurt by that. And it's okay for you to be like, sorry, I made a mistake. I didn't mean to. And like, I think both sides of those of that conversation are really important, but we only generally hear the, I'm still learning, be patient side of things. Does that make sense? As, as opposed to? Well, I, I think what is often expected of trans people is infinite grace and patience. And oh. that we're never allowed to have uh, anything other than the like, you know, Stepford wives. Gosh, I think you're trying and you're such a good person for that. It doesn't matter that you've used my, my wrong name six times in this conversation. I'm not allowed to have hurt feelings about that because gosh, you're trying. Obviously, I was you know, being, you know, exaggerating to make a point, but like often that's the expectation, right? Like, like I'll give a great example. There's, you know, the, like the internet trend of gender reveal parties. And it, it's really creepy that people want to announce their child's genitals to the world, I think. But somebody did it in a really egregious way. And I don't even remember what it was, but I just commented something like, oh my God, this is ridiculous and I hate it. And the response was... I'm disappointed in you, Callie. I thought you would do a better job explaining that. And I'm like, am I, am I not allowed to ju- like just have feelings about a thing? Like, do I have to have a, a two-page, double-spaced, e- typed essay ready to go anytime somebody wants to know something about gender? And that's the, the pressure that we are often under is that we're not just allowed to exist. We also have to be willing and ready to justify our existence and not have feelings about it at all times. And but, but isn't that isn't that part of being the the tip of the spear 
as it were, in terms of the trans rights movement. Because for a long time, right, it was it was extremely, I don't know that underground is the right word, but it was it was very much shrouded in darkness. And and now more of a light is being shone on it. And because I think there's that expectation, right? Especially if you're an advocate. Is is isn't that part of it? I mean I, I I, I get your point, and I understand, and I think I even agree with it. But I, I the first ones, right? The first, uh, the pioneers, as it were, they're always in for a bit of a rougher time, right? I mean, yeah, but for one, that doesn't make it okay, and two, in a conversation like this, absolutely. Like I volunteered for this, <laughs> right? Like I put myself forward and said, yes, ask me these questions. What I'm saying is that most trans folks feel this obligation in all situations in everyday life, like when they're out just trying to live. And that's not okay. I put myself forward for these kinds of conversations because I'm comfortable doing it. You know, it doesn't, doesn't cost me a lot of emotional damage to do it. I, I don't have these conversations with people who I think are approaching things in bad faith because that's, I, I just don't think much good ever comes from that. But I was talking to someone on a random Facebook post on a friend's wall, right? And expecting well, that's me- issue, that's issue number one. Well, okay, fair. That, yeah. was, that, that was my first mistake. Yes, you are correct. <laughs> um, <laughs> But I, I, th I think it's different. You know, when we're having a conversation like this, I'm like, hit me with whatever you got. You know what I mean? But like when I'm just browsing Facebook, expecting me to be like at the ready with an essay about gender, like ready to go just because someone expects me to have it. Like, come on. I think that's silly. And that's uh, a, a pressure that a lot of people feel who, uh, who, who don't make the choice that I do to get into those conversations. Like they're all just trying to live their life and like they deserve the ability to do that just as much as anyone else does, if that makes sense. It does. It does. Uh, let, me, let me start getting into some of the uh, current controversies that are, that are out there. Um, the, the I, I'm not, is, is, uh, is transgenderism still part of the DSM? Um, I don't know that that word specifically has ever been part of the DSM. But body dysmorphia? Uh, dysphoria is the word Dys generally. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Dysmorphia is a, is a different, different concept. Dysmorphia is where like, you look in the mirror and you see something different than what you physically look like. So like anorexic. Right. Yeah. yeah. A, okay. a lot of times it's, it's that kind of stuff. Dysphoria, like just the word dysphoria by itself is just a word that means like extreme discomfort. And uh, the, in relation to trans people, they usually call it gender dysphoria. So like uh, some sort of inherent uncomfortability with either like the social or physical aspects of what you were assigned at birth uh, in relation to like who you feel like you are. And uh, so I may get some of the super specific details of this wrong, but the DSM used to have gender identity disorder as like a diagnosable condition. And they changed it to uh, just being diagnosed as having gender dysphoria. So it's like... Um, the way that I think it's described is like gender dysphoria is a symptom whereas gender identity disorder was actually like a like a diagnosable disorder and that's not in the DSM any longer I don't believe but do you, do you get the, like so I guess I, uh, the core of what I'm getting trying to get to is regardless of the the fact that it's sort of it's perceived as something that's off or abnormal or 
a condition. We've we've gone through the scientific back and forth about, you know, is is being queer a, a choice or genetic? And I feel 99% good that it's come down on the side of, yes, it's genetic. We've found some of the markers, et cetera. But there's still a very large contingent out there of people who think that it's just a mental condition that needs to be rectified or addressed or treated. Right. And the way you framed it, sometimes maybe that's true. I think where a lot of people disagree is what the treatment is. <laughs> because I, I would say, first of all, like, you know, you alluded earlier to the idea that like the sort of broad spectrum of being transgender is kind of an amorphous thing. Like it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Uh, it's a lot harder to define, right? So like being transgender doesn't always necessarily mean gender dysphoria. It doesn't always necessarily mean that someone takes hormones or goes in, or, or has surgery. Uh, it doesn't always mean that people change their name or pronouns. It doesn't always mean that people change the clothes that they wear and that kind of stuff. And so, you know, if, if we were going to frame it as, as, a, as, a, as a mental health thing, like we would have to drill down a little bit further than just the label of transgender. Because, you know, as we said, that can mean a lot of different things. I think there is, and, and I don't have the specific names of the studies to cite like chapter and verse, but there's a pretty well-established history that gender dysphoria is treatable by the interventions that someone thinks that they need, whether that's hormones or surgery or, you know, just like affirmation, changing your clothes, changing your name, that kind of stuff. Uh, there's, there's a pretty good body of evidence that supports that like when people feel this way, transition to whatever degree someone wants, it is the solution. But like not all trans people feel a need for that either. And like that's valid in itself. So so part of this, and I'm sure you, you've talked to a lot of cis people, and, and when you start getting into sort of the depths of the, the trans situation, it's... I mean, it's confusing as hell at some for for a cis person. It's just oh, it is for I'm, it is for trans people too. Sometimes <laughs> I'm not like I'm not kvetching about it, but yeah. I mean, like when you said that about it's not necessarily trans. What's the right? Is it transgenderism? Well, you and I've heard I can't say ism because ism implies yeah. Well, like transgenderism when it's framed that way makes it sound like it's an ideology, and it's not. Um, and, and you generally, you only find that word used by like right wing hate groups. <laughs> so, so um, what do you call that? That what I'm, well, I would just say like transgender is an adjective, right? So you just like use it in a, as an adjective. So like transgender people, trans people, the trans community, that kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to, uh, it, it's just, um, the spectrum is, is so deep and wide that it, it's hard sometimes for a, a cis person to, and again, there's always that feeling of I've got to be on eggshells. I've got to walk delicately, right? Because on for people on the, and again, I'm talking about specifically people on the left, people who want to be supportive. There's and I think people on the right too. You know, they see all these things on on Facebook and everywhere else where you can't say this and you can't say that, and it's just um, I, I guess for any trans folks out there listening to this, I know that you're, I, I understand your pushback of like, quit asking us to be patient with y'all. And and I well, get that. Yeah, I but, wouldn't say that. That I, I would, I would definitely not say that is the framing. I think I would just say that like, we deserve patience too. 
Right. A lot of the pushback, I think, on on the right and and the middle comes from feeling like they're being punished for for not doing what they've always been accustomed to doing. If that, yeah, and I I mean I would agree with that. Uh, I, I think a, a lot of it comes from an unwillingness to admit that you might not quite be as amazing a person as you think you are. Um, and <laughs> wait, what? Uh, right, you know, uh, and, and honestly, like that's, I think what, what a lot of people are actually interested in is not being supportive. They're interested in having their current position affirmed as the good person position. Mm-hmm. Virtue signaling. Well, I don't know that it's that because. Well, on the, on the other side, right. Is not, not on the right, right. They're not virtue signaling by, by down talking trans people. But. I, I think they are. I think everyone virtue signals. I, every time you express an opinion that reflects your values, you are virtue signaling. Because otherwise, why would you say it? You would just like do the thing. <laughs> I, I hate the term virtue signaling because literally everyone does it. If you express an opinion, you are virtue signaling. <laughs> but yeah, that's probably but there's, a conversation. There's a but. difference between... Do, do you think there's a difference between donating anonymously and then when you make a donation putting it up on Facebook about how you donated all this money to this cause I mean yeah but because to, to me the the latter would be virtue signaling and I know that's something everybody does but I think I think there are people in our society who go especially with social media right as a because that's an enablement method that do go out of their way to try and let the other people, you know, in whatever circle they're in, know that I am a a good and virtuous person and I I think and say the right things. Yeah, uh, I generally call that performativity. Okay, okay. Christ, I'm learning new words. <laughs> I hope you have a pen and paper. <laughs> I, do, I do. I do. You should see it. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a mess. Um, because because that's what performativity is, right? Like you're doing a performance. You're trying. You're you're putting forth an image, but not really doing the acting to back it up. Because you know, like posting a donation on Facebook, right? Like the bystander effect is a thing. If you see other people doing a thing, you're more likely to jump in and do it yourself. And so like, that's why, you know, if I make a donation to something, I'll usually post about it. And it's not a congratulatory, look how good a person I am. I gave 50 bucks to this mutual aid fund. It's, hey, I just got a check from the government and I'm actually doing okay. So I donated half of it to this mutual aid fund. And if you're similarly doing okay, you should consider doing that too. Right. I'm not. I'm, yeah, I, I don't. I don't know that it's always a bad thing, but I think in in an extreme, and I get I get the correlation that you're talking about. So like the 30k millionaires on Instagram, I don't even know if that's a phrase anymore, but the people who pretend to be rich and <laughs> yeah, blinged they, out, they pretend to be rich and then they sell their course on how to get rich, and that's how they actually get rich. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's performativity. Yes. yes. <laughs> Got it. Let's let's go on to something more definable and tangible. And as I say that, I realize it's bullshit. But let me <laughs> let, let's let's start talking about trans people. I, I still feel like there's a word for it in athletics. In the what are the two really sources of contention, which are well, three, I guess. So so at you know at the high school level, at the Olympic level, and then at the professional level, because that's that's a hard, and and I struggle with this uh, myself. I have a hard time 
feeling good about a trans female. And I don't even know if I'm using that in the correct. So someone who has transitioned say trans to woman. That's good. Trans woman. Yeah. I don't feel good about a trans woman competing against cis women. Okay. Well, let's let's just let's just play this conversation out. So why? Well, I think I think physically and I think science shows that from a muscular perspective, from a, you know, from a strength perspective, etc., there's inherencies in being born with two X chromosomes versus an XY or vice versa, that your strength, speed, et cetera, once you hit a certain age, all significantly change in favor of, of one sex. Is that, is that not accurate? It's a lot more complicated than that. Um, <laughs> I was hoping you would not say that. Okay. <laughs> well, that's just that that's gonna be this conversation, yeah, my friend. Deal with it. Deal with yeah. it. Yeah. So I don't know if you know this about me in in your research about me, but I am an athlete. I play I play roller derby. A very, very rough, very aggressive contact sport. Obviously, I have not played it in a year because COVID-19, but <laughs> uh but previous to that, for for about a year and a half, I played roller derby. Uh just a very it's kind of complicated, so I won't go super into it. But basically, I put eight wheels on my feet and try to knock the hell out of other people as we skate around a track. Sure. We've all seen Glow on Netflix. And... You can... <laughs> yeah. Um, so my first question, I would say, is that if you see two cis women, one obviously quite a bit more muscular than another... Do you give a thought to what that person's genetics might be? I think I think when we're talking about the athletic spectrum, and I think this happens across all athletes, there's always a question of how much of their physique is just genetic, biological. They're they're blessed with a good set of genes and work and effort. And again, to to make this a really hot topic, right? Because that's always when we talk about black and white relations, you know, for for decades, right? It was if a black athlete is doing something really well, it's because they're naturally gifted, and if a white athlete does something well, it's because he's worked his ass off, right? Which is terrible. But I think I think always you you always do you know there there is that it's a combination of the two somehow, effort and genetics, and the question is. What percentage is which? But I think everybody kind of, I, I guess from my perspective, the people in my circle kind of understand that there are those two items at work. Right. And I would agree with you there. So my next question is, before trans people entered the equation, have those differences ever made you consider whether or not that person should be allowed to participate in said sport? No, because I have always taken it for granted that all the women participating were quote unquote women, and all the men who participated against each other were quote unquote men. Right. So we're making assumptions. Right. So that, I mean, that, that, that's kind of the, 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 the first place to start, right? Because I, I think what gets missed in this conversation a lot of times is that. You know, the, the conversation of like, are you genetically gifted? Did you work really hard? Obviously, like, that's something that is 
you know, been talked about in athletics as long as athletics has been a thing. But until trans people had entered the equation, whatever side of those things things fell on, there was never a conversation about a certain percentage of that excluding someone from a sport, right? When, uh, you know, Michael Phelps, you know, uh, arguably one of the greatest athletes in history, right? Right. But he is, his feet are like, 14 inches long or something weird. Well, and, right? and he has like his body produces significantly less lactic acid than the average person. So like lactic acid is the thing when you're working out, it makes your muscles hurt. And just naturally he produces a significant amount less of that than the average athlete does. And when that was found out, he was praised, right? He was genetically gifted. This is a miracle. This man is a miracle, right? But for some reason, when trans people enter the equation, it's nefarious. It's unfair. Uh, but only in one direction. Nobody's bitching about trans men competing. They're only bitching about trans women competing. And I think, I think there's, I feel in my, my head right now, I feel that there's some validity to that. Do you, are, you, are you not accepting of the general statement that XX people are, there's a, and I can't even remember in my head which one's which, but XX versus XY, and, and that biological men are inherently stronger than biological, and I know you don't like me saying that word, sorry, but biological women. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think, you know, the number of athletes who have had their karyotype done is probably close to none. Uh, and explain that for our viewers, please. Uh, karyotype is where, like, you take a test that tells you what your chromosomes actually are. Okay. And then I would also say that that completely leaves intersex folks out of the equation. Because, you know, the majority of people are born with like, you know, XX or XY chromosomes, but there's a significant number of people who are born with arrangements other than that. And so like, where do they fit into the conversation? When you say significant, do you have any, any thought of what that count is? Uh, it's like 5% of the population, like roughly the same amount of people that have red hair in the Wait. human population. Wait. Oh my God. I knew there was something wrong with gingers. Um, <laughs> uh, what do you, are you really telling me that, that, that XX and XY folks only make up 95% of the population? I would say there, uh, my, my specific understanding of the delineation is that about 5% of the population has an intersex condition of some kind. And that can mean chromosomes arranged differently, but there are also intersex conditions that, uh, that aren't necessarily chromosomal-based. Things like PCOS that just means that your like, body responds differently to hormones than the uh, quote-unquote average person. But yeah, yeah, the, the number is about 5% of people have, uh, have one kind of intersex condition or another, yeah. I, th I think the other pushback that's received in athletics is that you, you cannot do anything about your genetics, you either got it or you don't. And that's the only thing that isn't a level playing field is, is the genetics. The amount of effort that is put in to training or bettering yourself, that is a level playing field. Person X spends 10 hours shooting basketballs a day. Person Y can also spend 10 hours shooting basketballs a day. I, I think part of the issue is that that this, whether you want to call it a, a choice or or not a choice, or you know the reassignment process is it's perceived as a 
as a choice. And there, it is an unfair advantage because it is it is not. Does does that make sense? Your well, I, I would push back against the idea that it's a level playing field in terms of like how much practice you can put in, right? Because poverty is a thing. Um, you know, if someone if someone wants to play sports but they have to work two jobs to survive, they don't have the same opportunity as another person to to practice that same amount. And obviously, that's a, a different conversation. But I think it's just in terms of understanding uh, that there are multiple factors that influence all of this. I think it's important to point that out. And I, I think I, I would say my my overall thing is that this is an argument in search of a solution to a problem that doesn't really exist. It, well, if you ask the girls that get knocked down off the podium, they would say it absolutely exists. I mean, by girls who did who have lost uh, to to trans women, right? And do you have any data on how often that happens? I d- I don't. I I do know that the media makes much more. You would think it was happening daily, but I think because because of people like yourself and and just the culture in general, I think that trans community is becoming much more visible than than they like they've always existed, right? Even that sounded bad. There's always been trans people. It's just and just like there's always been gay people. It's just that now they're a little bit more comfortable, and there's more avenues to fully expressing who they are. And I think as as that increases the number of these instances in sports is is going to increase. And I think where it's a, a, you know, I think there's multiple levels that it exists on, as I mentioned, but, you know, the high school sport seems to be a specific hotspot. And then I think you get into some situations like MMA uh, or boxing, right, where there's potential for serious harm to be done if a trans woman fought another woman. Does it does does any of that resonate or make sense or hit home or or are we just off in the wild here? I mean, it doesn't really to me because if you, I mean, if if you look, I mean, you'll see isolated incidents for sure. Like like let's take MMA for example. Fallon Fox was an MMA fighter. She doesn't fight anymore because she cracked somebody's skull. But that was also like after she had had bottom surgery and been on estrogen forever. So like hormonally, okay, I'm going to preface this with my frustration with the conversation in general. Not that I don't think it has to be had, but I will tell you why the conversation frustrates me. Because the framing of the conversation is that people who are assigned male at birth will, regardless of any circumstances, have an inherent advantage over people assigned female at birth in in terms of like athletic performance, right? In a vacuum, and yes. You so, don't think that... It, it, all every, everything else aside, you don't... In a vacuum, you wouldn't say that that's a true statement? No, not inherently. Okay. But, I mean, scientific studies have, have shown, right, that the, the weakest man is, is still a much likelier percentage to be stronger than the strongest woman. Right, but the average person isn't an athlete either. So, if we're talking about sports, we have to, we have to narrow things down a little further than that. So, so you know, it, it's framed as like people like me specifically have an inherent advantage over people who are assigned female at birth, right? And, uh, and, you know, in terms of athletics and athletic performance. And so what that puts me in the position of doing is having to justify my existence by proving that I'm actually mediocre. And that's a really frustrating place to be. I think anecdotally, 
like a lot of people don't understand that trans athletes are already allowed to participate across many sports and many organizations at many levels. And if you look at how many sports are actually dominated by trans athletes, the answer is zero. It's just not a thing. And so like, I would think we, first of all, if this was a problem, I think we would, we would see a lot more of that. We would see, you know, every, every place that trans athletes are allowed to compete, we would see trans athletes just absolutely dominating. And we would see trans men at the absolute bottom of men's sports, right? And neither of those things are true. You know, I, I've, I've looked at the research and again, I couldn't cite chapter and verse because this was years ago. But like, if you look at it, trans athletes are generally pretty average in terms of their athletic achievement. And, and I, I think that in itself kind of puts the question to rest. But if we have to go further than that, I mean, I can, I can cite examples of, you know, myself playing roller derby, right? And, and first of all, there are a lot of sports where you have to be on hormones or like have surgery before you can participate. And that's a whole different conversation. But like with those things, with those things in place, it removes even more of what we would maybe say is a, is an inherent advantage. But like, I mean, I can, I can remember, you know, playing, playing roller derby with men, like cis men with, you know, just like their natural level of testosterone and me because of surgeries and hormones and stuff like that. Like I have less testosterone in my body than the average cis woman does. And there are men that I can absolutely dominate on the track. And there are cis women who will knock me the hell out every single time. And in roller derby, where there is no, like, you have to be on hormones, any of that, you know, you see more trans people participating because it's generally a more inclusive environment. But again, you don't see trans folks absolutely dominating the sport, even in a sport where trans folks aren't necessarily required to be on hormones. Like, it's just not a thing that happens. Well, I think I think the cliche or the anecdotal response to that is the the trans women were, you know, very generic or not very good at the sport they were competing in as a man, but as a trans woman, they're, you know, top 10 material. Again, I would say like I mean, first of all, like That's the let's, cliche. That's right, the cliche. Right. My my response to that would be if you want to go through all of the shit that trans people go through just to get be, just to be better at a sport. God bless you. You'll last a week. I promise. I don't. I don't think it's that. I don't. I don't like. I don't think anybody has a issue with trans people competing in as a, as as a generic baseline. I think. I think where it starts becoming problematic for people is when there is something of value at stake in that competition and. A cis woman is displaced from some sort of reward for that competition because of the presence of of a trans woman. Yeah, and I would just say there's nothing that entitles that cis person to that position over that trans person. Like that trans person belongs there just as much as that cis person does. I mean, that's sort of an outcropping of the idea that the world in its entirety belongs to cis people and whatever space trans people get, we are being graciously given as opposed to it being a space that we simply belong in. And so that's, that would be my pushback to that idea. So, so we, we have always, from time immemorial, we have separated our athletic competitions into to male and female divisions. Yeah, yeah and, and I, I would say that practice in itself, I think, could do for some examination. But again, I just come back to the fact that the entire conversation is in search of a solution to a problem that doesn't exist. 
Okay. Okay. Well, with that solved, let's go on to a really difficult subject. <laughs> Another uh, one of the, the, the big frontline controversies right now is the identification of transgender children. And, and we hear stories as early as five or eight identifying as trans. And then, you know, the, the parents are accommodating it, not, not beyond just breaking of the normal, you know, gender norms, you know, so they'll grow long hair and play with dolls instead of trucks or whatever, but actually starting to do, you know, either medical treatments, you know, hormone treatments or other medical, I don't know, procedures, and then actually, you know, at sometimes even surgery while they're still in their teens. And I think we're, in general, when you, when you say, okay, here, here's a 16-year-old who's transitioned surgically. Um, I, would, but, I, would, I would just say up front, not a thing. Yeah. What's that? Not a thing. What do you, Surgeries as okay. young as 16, that's just, I, I, I can't say that it's never happened, but it's not a thing that happens. Okay. But if you're putting, if the parents are putting them on a, a medical treatment plan, you know, with the expectations that they are going to transition surgically at 18, isn't that greasing the wheels a little bit? So if it happens, like if it happens at, right at eighteen, you're okay with that? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So what about what about the thought that the human brain doesn't fully develop till you're twenty five? I mean, I, I would just say that it's a bit hypocritical to push against that because we as a society tend to be okay with people uh, smoking cigarettes at eighteen, or like going to the Middle East and killing people at eighteen, or you know getting the death penalty for crimes committed at eighteen. So the idea that we as a society want to protect people's undeveloped brains, honestly, like that's just entirely bullshit to me. It's not that that argument to me does not track. No, I'm I'm not saying I'm not saying that we as a society are are blameless in that regard, but I. I, I think I think where that's coming from is a sense of concern of we are we are someone someone who is not fully emotionally mature is making a lifetime a serious lifetime change for sure and in what I mean to say by that is that like we as a society, if we are expressing that, we are full of shit because we let 18-year-olds do all kinds of life-altering and sometimes life-ending things uh, without giving it a whole lot of second thought. So, so what I would, my point in saying that is that I don't think people are being honest that that is their actual concern uh, in, in general because in general, we don't question the wisdom of sending an 18-year-old across the world to kill people or possibly be killed themselves. There's not a general opposition to that in society. So like the idea that society in general would be against someone making decisions about their own body, I just, I don't buy it. I, I don't buy that as an actual motivating concern. And now individually, I, I'm sure there are people for whom that is their legitimate individual concern. And I have an it, answer it, for it's that. A con but <laughs> it, it's a concern to me. Sure, it, yeah. it, it is a concern. Like, my God, if I made permanent decisions when I was 18... I'd I'd be in dead in a ditch somewhere right now. Like I my my eighteen year old self was so incredibly immature and responsive and reactive that I can't imagine. But so so me as a person, I have a hard time with with that with that concept. 
the, so what I'm going to say kind of sounds like a, a tacit endorsement of medical gatekeeping, and that's like a whole different subject. But what I will say is that, first of all, to just kind of give a timeline of what transition, generally speaking, looks like for kids in this position, assuming they're like 100% supported from like medical and mental health professionals and their parents and their families and their schools and so on, right? Until puberty starts, transition means the stuff that like you said, like different haircut, different name, different pronouns, maybe different toys, different clothes, that kind of stuff. It's literally nothing more than that. And so obviously there's, that's all incredibly benign. People throw fits about that. But I think lots of people, uh, the more reasonable people who might have doubts about larger things will probably agree that's all pretty benign and that's all fine, right? Like you can grow your hair back out, you can buy new clothes, all of that sort of thing, not a big deal. When puberty happens, cross-sex hormone therapy does not generally start right away. What happens is kids are often put on drugs that block puberty. And blocking puberty literally means that, right? It does not mean that like a kid assigned male at birth starts growing breasts, for example, or like fat redistributes or anything like that. It maintains this, the pre-puberty status quo for a period of time. And then cross-sex hormone therapy maybe starts at like 15, 16, 17-ish. And even cross-sex hormone therapy takes, depending on the direction you're going and all of that sort of stuff can take like six months to a year before any of the changes are permanent. And then, like I said, I can't say for definitively sure that a surgery has never happened on a trans kid before 18, but as a rule, it's just not a thing. Like just doesn't happen. And throughout this entire process, because first of all, puberty blockers uh, are outlandishly expensive if you pay for them out of pocket. I, I think I had a parent tell me once that uh, if they had to pay for it out of pocket, it would have been like five grand a month or something wild like that. And so like throughout this entire process, these kids are under intense, intense scrutiny and supervision by medical and mental health providers, right? These kids are being evaluated, tested, poked, prodded in every possible way at every step along the way right if if they're under a professional medical regimen right but if they're if they're 5 and they walk up into their parents room and say hey i feel like i'm a girl and the parents go along with that right it's it's there's absolutely no real professionalism involved there i mean there doesn't have to be there i mean there often is uh, i mean hopefully a parent would seek out some kind of uh, mental health professional there but like i would also say that before that, we're also at the point where there are no permanent life-altering changes happening either. So I, I, I but, think that's less of a big deal. We talked earlier about the power of labels and, and the power of identification and, and even your struggles with, like, what do I call myself? Like, where, where, what is my label? And I think, I think in my head, I have a fear of, like, at, at five, God knows, I was, I was probably still shitting on the floor at five, uh, you know, there was there wasn't anything up there, and I guess my fear, in in the general sense, is if you combine, you know, the the proactiveness of of maybe farther left parents tying into what you mentioned before in terms of performativity. I'll, someday I'll say that right. <laughs> Performativity, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Performativity. 
Because how many news articles do we see about, hey, you know, so-and-so, this such-and-such Hollywood, hey, my, my child is trans, right? It's, 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 it's news-making currently. And then you read, well, their, their kid is five years old or six years old or seven years old or eight years old. And, and I, so I guess there's a little bit of a fear that if they get labeled as such and if they get attention as such— that there's a higher likelihood of that that may continue longer than it would have in in as opposed to a natural progression. I mean, I can't say that's not a concern at all, but I think that's a really bad argument against the idea of affirming them, if that makes sense. Because, you know, if, if we're talking about affirming this child and acknowledging who they are, but we have this fear. Like, what's, I mean, what's the alternative, right? Do we tell the kid, like, nope, sorry, I know you're miserable the way things are, but we're not going to let you do anything about it because we're afraid you might change your mind later, right? Like, I, I don't think that's a good alternative in any case. Because w- what that what that kind of leads into is the idea that, like, we live in a super transphobic society, so we shouldn't let our kids be trans because they'll have a bad experience of it. Or, you know, and, and I'm, I'm, I guess I'm not saying that. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm saying something that isn't ever possible, where it, the parents making a big deal of it, right? As a, you know, just okay, you feel like a girl, great. Let's, you know, you're a girl, you know, and and do what you want, and you know, just sort of just absorbing it and allowing it. To continue rather than making a big Oh, I, know, I see what you're saying. So like the idea that like if you do it, it becomes a big deal, you get positive attention, and therefore like you start doing it for that reason as opposed to it being really who you are. Is that that the concern? Or is, or is a component like I don't I don't think any decisions are ever purely, you know, to sorry the pun binary. But, <laughs> right, right. You yeah, know, yeah. you know, I think there's a potential for that, especially if it starts at a very young age. No, totally. And, and I agree with you that potential exists, right? But like that potential is a byproduct of the fact that we live in a transphobic society. And, and I would also say that the likelihood of that happening is so low. Our society still makes it so actively hard to simply exist as a trans person. The idea that that would be a concern is a fantasy to me. Like I would absolutely love to have that problem instead of the ones that exist, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Okay. Because because right. the thing is like gender dysphoria if you have it I mean like like it goes both directions, right? Like if your parents are trying to force you into being something you're not, those feelings are going to come up the other direction as well, right? There's a a story it would take me a really long time to tell the whole thing, but basically this kid was born identical twin, both assigned male at birth, and they went to have him and his brother circumcised. And it was this new like laser procedure or whatever. And it irreparably damaged this kid's penis to to the point where he was going to need like major reconstructive surgery. And the doctors were like, you know, what do you want to do? And there was, there was this doctor that had gotten a hold of this kid's story and basically convinced the parents to raise this kid as a girl. Because his conception was the idea of gender is entirely socially constructed. And if you raise a kid as a girl, then that's just who they're going to end up being. Long story short, didn't work. They gave this kid hormone blockers and then cross-sex hormone therapy without telling him. And just like raised him as a girl, stereotypically as, as one does. 
And long story short, he ended up committing suicide. Once he found out what was going on, he like detransitioned from from being a, a, a ostensibly you know a woman into being a man, which was his actual assigned at birth gender. But because of all the trauma he was put through in that, he ended up dying by suicide. So, you know, if a parent is being overly affirmative such that they're actually like pushing their kid, like, no, you're trans, um, like there's a really good chance those feelings are going to come up in that kid anyways at some point. And so I would say like, I, I get what you're saying, but I really, really don't think that that's a, a concern that's, that's valid in a realistic sense, if that makes sense. Okay. Yeah, it does. It does. But I guess bo- bottom line is, is a 19-year-old comes to you and says they're thinking about reassignment surgery, is your advice to them, you know, if you're ready for it, go ahead? Or, you know, there's no blanket. You wouldn't blanket advise them to wait a few years? No, not as a rule. The thing to understand, uh, and there's, there's a whole other conversation to be had about medical gatekeeping and, like, what is held back from trans people that's not held from other people. So I'm not necessarily endorsing this system, but I will say to get transgender-related surgery of any kind is already a gigantic hoop to jump through. For example, I had bottom surgery three and a half years ago. I had a vaginoplasty, and I had to have letters from three different health professionals. Uh, I had to have a letter from my primary care doctor, just saying that like I'd been on hormones for at least a year. I had to have a pre-existing relationship with a therapist that I had been seeing for at least 12 months. And she had to sign a paper saying that I was ready for this surgery before I could get it. And then I had to be evaluated by another therapist that I don't have a relationship with. And she had to sign off saying that I was making this decision for good reasons and that I was like making the right decision. And so even as an adult, like having that, you know, when I was, I would have been 33 at the time, like... I still had to jump through so many hoops to get there, right? But but is that and a good thing or is it too much? I think it's too much. Okay. But do you think there should be any like any checks and balances? I mean, I think baseline, you know, you're not having like a manic episode or something like that. Sure. But like we don't ask those questions of cis women that want breast implants, right? Because they're reversible. Yeah, but if I want breast implants, I still have to jump through all of those hoops. And and it's and I mean it is kind of reversible, but like the the way that it stretches your skin out, sure isn't. I don't know that we want to equate that to genitalia reversal. I mean, sure. I, I mean, it, it, like it's obviously different. There's no putting that bad boy back on. No, no, I, no, no. There's not for sure. Um, but like, what I can say is, if I hadn't had access to that surgery, I would have killed myself. Right. right. And. Uh, I think the, the, the costs of gatekeeping that away are far too high. Because, you know, I mean, we can talk about the, the rates of attempted suicide among the trans community, right? Like, through the, roof. the general population, if I'm remem- remembering the number right, the rate of attempted suicide is like 3.5% of people who have made like an actual suicide attempt. Among the queer community, it's about five, like five to six percent, if I'm remembering my numbers right. And among the trans community, it's north of forty percent. And so, I I hear two things on that. Right, I hear there's already something mentally off about that, 
right? Like there's already, you're taking a person who is struggling with their core identity as it is. So they're already in a bad place to begin with. Well, that's assuming that the high trans suicide rate is directly related to transness and it's not. It's related to how difficult it is to live in our society as a trans person. And that's a really, really important distinction. You, uh, so again, to me, again, to me, this is just my personal feelings. Again, everything is sort of a, it goes into a pie or a pie chart of what, what percentage is this and what percentage is that. But so obviously the, how they're treated as a trans individual is, is a huge portion of that pie. But isn't there some portion of that pie that just comes from the inherent conflict that they've been feeling, uh, especially in their early years? I think that's making an assumption, uh, an assumption about what transness means that's not always valid. Because, you know, lots of trans people do experience that sort of dysphoria, like the body dysphoria, social dysphoria, that kind of stuff. And there is that struggle. But most of the struggle is interpersonal in uh, how we are treated for being who we are. It's not inherent to who we are, right? Like, if... I don't think, like, if it was 100% safe to be a trans person in our society, I don't think I would have ever come close to committing suicide. I don't think I ever would have thought about it. And I th- and there, frankly, are just, like, a lot more people that would be alive today. And I think that number would probably be far more in line with the, norm, with the, the, the average population if that were the case. And so I, I think it's really important to understand that, like, the, the struggles that come along with being a trans person are most inherently tied to the way that our society treats us not inherent to being trans ourselves. Um, because even dysphoria, right? Like many or most kinds of dysphoria, we have the medical technology to fix or mitigate, right? Uh, through surgery or through hormones, you know, obviously hormones and surgery can't fix everything, but like the most acute forms of dysphoria that are most commonly uh, reported by people, like we have things that can fix those. And if the the, the gatekeeping wasn't so bad and the, there weren't so many hoops to jump through, I think it would be like, oh gosh, I'm really uncomfortable with this. That actually kind of makes me miserable. Let me go fix that. As opposed to, wow, I'm really uncomfortable with this. I'm kind of miserable with this. And oh my God, it's going to be six years and $40,000 before I can do anything about it. And I think that's the difference, right? Like, like I'll just, I'll, I'll give a, a very personal example here, right? You know, we talked earlier about how people's experiences can change over time. And when I first thought, like, gosh, I might be trans, uh, I actually had more intense dysphoria around my chest than around my genitalia. The reason I got bottom surgery first is because I knew it would be the hardest one to get. It's the most expensive, least, well, not least likely to be covered. It's the most expensive and most likely to be covered by insurance. And I knew that like, if I didn't have insurance, I might be able to save up the money to get uh, breast enhancement if I wanted to. But like after bottom surgery, I was really surprised at how little dysphoria I felt about other things. And so I was like, huh, maybe I'm not going to do that. And now at this point in my life, I am feeling that again. But because I'm a relatively middle-class person with halfway, decent health, with halfway decent health insurance, that experience of discomfort is entirely different for me because I know I have access to the solution to it. Like, it's just a matter of, like, making some phone calls and filling out some paperwork. As opposed to, to 
having not having a choice in the matter at all. Exactly. Right. Like like I uh you know I don't have the money to go see a therapist. I don't have the insurance to go see a therapist. I don't have the money to pay out of pocket for it. I live in an area where uh, there aren't people who do that kind of surgery. So I don't have the money to travel to get it. I don't have someone who can afford to take off work to come stay with me and take care of me. Like all of those barriers add up to make the problem worse. So like even though I'm now experiencing some pretty intense dysphoria about my chest, because I like when I'm feeling that way, I know I've already made that phone call and I think my insurance may cover it. And even if it doesn't, I probably have good enough credit that I can finance it. And so it's like immediately like, I have this problem, but I also have relatively easy access to the solution, thankfully, because I have a good therapist who, you know, who will write me the letter that I need. But you're not, so you're not handcuffed. Exactly. You're not. Exactly. And so like, I have a problem, but I also have an easily visible, an easily visualized solution. That's, that's the word. Um, and, And that is so much of where that conflict comes from, right? It's not necessarily inherent to the experience of being trans in itself. So let's, let's try and finish up on, on um, a, a positive direction here. When people say trans rights, and again, th- this is my perspective, is, is a lot of times when, when, when people hear about rights, whether it's gay rights or black rights or whatever rights, they're not talking about anything additional, right? All they want is a level playing field. They just want the same rights as everybody else. And I'm assuming that's the same for the trans community? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So can you tell me, as someone who's not super versed in it, where are those rights currently? Where are they deficient? What what areas do we need to work on in order to bring the trans community into equality? Yeah, there is a lot. Um, so... Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the big ones. Give me a couple of the big ones, the most important ones. Well, uh, non-discrimination is a big one, right? Because there are still states where it's legal to be fired for being trans. And, uh, you know, the, we have a Supreme, Co- Supreme Court decision that has uh, that's kind of nullified that. And I'm like, I have lawyer friends who have kind of helped talk me through what all of that means. But like, basically now, like federally, it is illegal to fire someone for being gay or for being trans, which is nice. But that's also Supreme Court precedent, right? Like, obviously, we have we have an incredibly conservative Supreme Court that is going to do everything they can to poke holes through that with religious exceptions, right? And so that's that's a concern. Housing is a big one. Poverty, healthcare, healthcare is a huge one. It's roughly, I want to say, like twenty or twenty-five percent of trans people report having to educate their healthcare providers about the needs of the trans community, which is wild to me. And about the same percentage of people report having been like outright denied care for being trans, uh, for one reason or another. Uh, a doctor who has an ideology that opposes trans folks. People have problems with identification documents. If you go in and you're presenting like stereotypically as a woman, but your ID still says male, people will have problems with that and saying like, well, your ID doesn't match who you are. So like, I think you're faking and we're not going to treat you. There is the, uh, you know, the constant fight of people being, being able to turn down trans folks for healthcare and not for just trans related reasons, right? I have a a friend who had to answer questions about his genitals to get uh, treated for a sinus infection, for example, (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. right? (laughs) So it's a lot of stuff like that, right? So what what a lot of people... We'd all consider core basic values. Nothing nothing that you mentioned in that list was 
crazy talk. Right, right? yeah. And, it's, and that's, it's all very bread and butter type Yeah, issues. and that's exactly what it comes down to, right? Like when people say like trans healthcare, automatically they think we're talking about hormones and surgery. And like, first of all, yes, that is true. But also there are like serious deficiencies in the way trans folks are treated when it comes to just basic healthcare. Like, uh, for example, there's a, a trans man who died of breast cancer because uh, his doctor didn't want to give him test results because he was a man with breast cancer. And we, we all know the insurance companies will do whatever they can possibly do to try and disqualify someone or deny benefits to someone. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, uh, it, it's gotten better for trans folks, but it's, uh, it, it's, it's pretty, pretty horrific in some places because there are lots of insurance companies that have blanket bans on trans-related care. So, like, uh, they'll ref- <laughs> this is a story that I heard, and I read it on the internet, so for what that's worth, but given what I know, I don't find it difficult to believe a person was seek, was like fighting their insurance company on getting trans stuff covered. As a result, had a cardiac incident uh, because of the stress. And oh, no. their, they, de- they de- disqualified them? Oh, yeah. Their insurance or? company acknowledged their responsibility in causing the cardiac event so they could say it was trans-related and not pay for uh, the, like the EKG or whatever. Oh, that's rough. Yeah. That's a double whammy. Um, and uh, yeah, and so it's it's a lot of stuff like that, and and there's also like little stuff, right? Like there are still insurance companies who like when you, and and this is queer related as trans related. There are still insurance companies that like if you're going in and filling out your information and you're and you mark the same thing for your gender as your spouse's gender, it'll be like, hey, are you sure about that? And like stuff like that. And it's uh, sometimes it's difficult to change all of that stuff over. And I would also be remiss if I didn't mention uh, the intersecting oppressions that happen, right? So uh, statistically, trans folks are far more likely to experience poverty than the average population. And it gets worse if you're not white. Uh, Black trans women specifically experience basically the worst of all the the systemic and personal oppressions that trans people can face. And so it's not, a a lot of it is trans related, but some of it is also, uh, I mean, some of it's straight up misogyny. Like, well, I see you as a woman now. I generally treat women like shit, so I'm going to treat you like shit too. That happens. But also again, if you're not white, if you're, uh, if you're poor, because, you know, for example, like I, uh, so one, I'm white. Two, I'm, uh, I'm a, a person who communicates well with people generally. It's not hard. It's not difficult for me to advocate for myself because I have a supportive environment. Uh, that's not a thing that's true for everyone. I don't have to, you know, I, I don't have to use like community health services that may be under-resourced and underfunded and therefore know nothing about trans people. Like, of course, I've, I've gone into like big expensive emergency rooms and had a nurse ask me, about trans stuff while I'm like thinking my stomach is exploding. That's a whole other thing. But like if we're talking about legal rights, it, it really is the fact that trans people are often shut out of the things that general society takes for granted uh, in, in how it is legal to discriminate against someone for being trans in many ways that it is um, illegal to discriminate against someone for being non-white, for example. And, and then th- there's also the interpersonal stuff too, right? Like it's not just, like I think laws and rights and policies are incredibly, incredibly important, but they're also not the entire story, right? Because if you have a good policy, you have to convince people to implement it well, and that's a whole other thing. 
you know, cause like the healthcare provider I know went to, I know has a, a non-discrimination policy that includes gender identity. Uh, but I also went in because I thought I legitimately thought like my stomach was going to explode. It was the worst pain I ever felt in my life. And the nurse starts asking me trans questions and I'm like, I like worried I'm going to be dead in 15 minutes. I'm not doing a trans one one right now, my friend. <laughs> right. Uh, right. And so there's, there's a lot of stuff like that too. That is, that's important to remember. So, so I, I self-labeled as part of my performative virtue signaling early on as an ally. And, and I know that that word gets abused a lot. But for the people out there who, who consider themselves supportive of the trans movement, what are some tangible action items that they can take to try and improve the situation? Yeah, totally. So I think one is there is there's an important attitude shift i think that a lot of folks need to make and 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 like i'm speaking as someone who is like often telling cis, po- cis folks how to do better about gender stuff and i'm also on my own journey of doing better about race and ability and that kind of thing and a lot of these things tie together like that's not to say that like racism and transphobia are the same thing because they're certainly not but it's important to remember that like allyship is not it's not something that you should automatically like take on as a self-identity, right? Like ally is something that someone who is a member of that community should feel comfortable bestowing upon you, if that makes sense. Because there are lots of people who say they're allies and are not, and like actively are not. And Supportive then. Sure, or... or Supportive as long as I'm in my comfort zone. I, yeah, that... That absolutely nails it. Supportive as long as it's within my comfort zone uh, is something that I run into a whole lot. Like, like, yeah, I love trans people. Just don't challenge any of my ingrained attitudes about gender ever. I, I've learned this one thing. I have this one trans friend and um, <laughs> I'm done. I'm complete. I'm there. So yeah, yeah, just God, don't do that. And, and I also, I like to think of practicing allyship as a verb, right? And, and that is allyship is not a label so much as it is an action. And the the important thing to consider there is like what spheres of influence do you have, right? Because a person who is a manager at their job is going to practice allyship in a different way than someone who's like self-employed and doesn't have a large social circle. You know what I mean? And so in in a general way, what I would consider or what I would ask folks to consider is what spheres of influence do I actually have, right? So maybe that's your Facebook page. Maybe that's your Twitter page. Maybe that's... In conversation with your friends. Right, your friend group, a a hobby group that you're involved with. If you like knitting or if you're a Star Trek fan and you have a Star Trek fan group, like that kind of stuff, right? Like where do you actually have influence to exert? And then think about the ways that you can leverage that on behalf of marginalized folks and not just trans people, right? Because I think anti-racism is very important as well. And so being proactive, thinking about things like introducing yourself with your pronouns and don't do it just when you know there's a trans person in the room. (laughs) Do active anti-racism work, even if there aren't black people in your group yet. (laughs) that kind of thing, being proactive, understanding that this is a problem to be solved now, not when you like, okay, we want to diversify our group. So now we're going to, you know, do a group reading of how to be anti-racist, like that kind of thing. So, uh, a big thing for me is like, don't laugh at shitty jokes 
and push back at shitty jokes if you can. Some people, you know, if it's somebody who has power over you and I'm not a big fan of saying like, well, give up your meal ticket, tell your manager to fuck off if he makes a sexist joke. Uh, that's right. impractical, obviously. That's, that's not going to happen. But in general, when you're on, around your friends yeah. and, and somebody makes a trans joke, you give them the stink eye. Yeah, and, and at, the, at the least, you can be the person visibly not laughing at the joke, right? Like, oh yeah, that's, that's not... That's not really funny. And, and I also think educating yourself is very important, right? Like conversations like this are huge. And that's part of the reason why I do conversations like this. Like if you listen to my podcast, my podcast is not a trans 101. Like my podcast is like trans 301. I, I assume a certain level of cultural competency because my, my podcast is made primarily for a queer and trans audience. That doesn't mean other people can't get something from it, but like that's who I've chosen to serve first. But like go out and, and proactively seek those resources, right? So like listening to this conversation is great, but if you only listen to this conversation, you are not equipped <laughs> right. fully, right? <laughs> you like, don't get your ally badge right. quite so easily. And, and, and I think what's important, right? Because we were talking earlier about, you know, the expectation that every marginalized person is an educator in waiting. And I would, first of all, say, don't do that. You don't want to like build that obligation into your relationships with black folks about race or with trans folks about gender, that kind of thing. There are tons of people all over the internet who have made it their work to have these conversations and write about this stuff and make podcasts and make YouTube videos. And so I would say it's on you to go out and do that research, right? Like there are people out there already who are actively working to answer these questions and give this information. And I would say that it's on you to go out and do that work of, of educating and understanding yourself instead of just like, oh, hey, you know what? I met a trans person for the first time. And you know what? I've always thought about people's penises and it's, People may laugh, but I've had a conversation very similar to that at one point in my life. It was very, very awkward. We are we are obsessed with genitalia. We are we? to an unsettling degree. Like I think there are cis people who are more obsessed with genitalia than I am as a person who has had mine surgically rearranged, honestly. But yeah, I, I think those are those are probably the the most important points. And then I would just say, like, understand that being uncomfortable is an important part of the process because understanding that we need to do and be better on gender, on race, on ability, all of that stuff is to acknowledge that we are not where we need to be and that we have bad ideas ingrained in us that we need to unlearn and then replace them with better ideas. And because there is no there is no growth without discomfort. Exactly. Exactly. And some of those things are going to brush up against topics that are very, very uncomfortable for you. Things where you probably thought you had it figured out and then realized that you didn't. Some subtle ways in that you may be transphobic or homophobic that you didn't realize you were. Or an anti-racism work, ways that you're racist in which you didn't think you were before. All of those things, like it's not always a fun process and it's not meant to be, but it's very important to do if, if you're really serious about doing the work of building a better world for marginalized folks to exist in. I think that about sums it up. Are, are, for those people out there who would like to get a little bit more informed, obviously your podcast is at queersplaining.com. Is is one of the resources. Are there any other really sort of maybe the top one or two key resources on the internet that you might point people towards? There's a website called What the Trans 
that is really good, especially if you're like a friend or family member of someone who's coming out and like you have questions and you're not really sure what to do. Like there's some really good like writing and basic terminology there. There's also a group called PFLAG that is really, really good. It's They do in-person support groups for friends and family of folks who have come out as queer or trans, uh, but they also have some really good uh, resources, reading and educating and stuff online. So th- those are probably the the top two that I would go to. And then, and then I would just... God, I almost don't want to say like search for trans stuff on YouTube because you're going to get a whole lot of terrible, terrible things if you do that. <laughs> yeah, um, careful kids. Yeah, yeah, careful. I would say Cat uh, Black is a trans YouTuber. Uh, she doesn't always make videos about trans stuff, but she has made videos about trans stuff that are really good. Gosh, uh, she's the first one that comes to mind because she's amazing and I love her. Well, thank you. I'll, any anything at the end that you just want to say or or put out there into the universe? No, I think that I think that about sums it up. I have I have talked a lot over the last two hours, and I feel like I appreciate it. And I <laughs> yeah. apologize. No, we, it's all we, good. We did go beyond the time, but it's just. And I think honestly, I think we could talk for another ten hours. Oh, could uh, we ever? <laughs> at least so. Callie, I I just so incredibly appreciate it. I know it's 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 not again it's it's not the most comfortable thing for anybody, especially on topics that we consider to be personal or or uh, are deeply attached to. So I I really appreciate you taking the time and um, yeah, I hope we I hope we stay in touch. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate being asked, and I I I really like I said I. I personally am a person who enjoys having these conversations and I'm fine volunteering to do them. I would just uh I would just say that not all trans folks are like that and I would not uh, I would not expect every trans person to openly talk about their genitals in the way that I do. <laughs> That's it. what I'm throwing out to the universe. <laughs> Keep that in mind, folks. No, you can't just walk up to anybody and say, "Hey, how are you feeling about your genitals today?" Hashtag things not, we uh, probably shouldn't have to say but definitely do. <laughs> the warning label. All right, Kelly, thank you very much. Thanks again for taking the time. Absolutely. Thank you for listening. Catch us on Spotify and iTunes and at tiltatwindmills.com.